Okay, well, good evening. Uh, my name is Matt, and it is my great privilege to be able to speak with you this evening. Uh, I'm on staff here at Cross Life, and uh, again, I'm just honored to be able to talk about uh, this topic. Um, if you've got an outline, it might be helpful this evening because it's going to be a topical talk, and I'm, I hope to challenge your thinking in, a, in this area. So I want to begin by asking, have you ever struggled to explain your faith to someone? I'm sure you have. I think it's safe to say if you're a Christian, you probably have. But let me ask this question. Have you ever struggled to explain your faith to yourself? In other words, have you ever doubted not just your salvation, but Christianity as a whole? If so, don't feel like an outcast. You're not alone. Uh, To the believer, the Holy Spirit affirms us that we are a child of God. But what about when you don't feel like you have the Spirit? Or how about when you're bombarded with science and philosophy sitting in class? After all, these are professors, right? These are men with more degrees than you have years in college. I mean, it's science, right? It's evidence. Evidence doesn't lie, right? Surely they know what they're talking about. Well, this evening I won't answer every question that's ever going to come into your mind or come across your way as you're sharing your faith, but I do hope to open your awareness to a field of answers that awaits your discovery. And that field is apologetics. Apologetics can be defined as the area of theology consisting of reasoned arguments to justify the Christian faith. The word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. Uh, We get our English word apology from it, and it means to make a verbal defense, particularly in the law of court. It's literally apo from and logos, intelligent reasoning. So then apologetics can be thought of as a well-reasoned reply or literally a thought-out response. The word apology is used eight times in the New Testament, and you'll see it most often in Acts when it's talking about Paul making his defense. Acts 22.1, Paul said he would give his defense and in several other places with the same connotation. However, here's what I want to state is that apologia does not merely mean defense. And in fact, if you've got your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 26 uh, as we begin. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 26. And if we look at verse 1 of Acts 26, it says, Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Okay, there's that word, apologia. He went to make his his reasoned reply. But I want to show you something interesting. Now flip to the end of Acts chapter 26 and look at verse 28. And it says, Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time will you persuade me to become a Christian? Some versions say, Or Paul, did you think in such a short time you would persuade me to become a Christian? Well, what, what am I trying to draw from this? Agrippa knew that he was being persuaded. Although Paul was giving his defense, it was clearly an offensive strategic attack as well. And in fact, Paul responds in verse 29, I wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but all who hear me on this day might become such as I. So then, apologetics can be defensive and offensive. And just to kind of help us understand these, I would say this, offensive apologetics seeks to present a positive case for Christian truths. In other words, it seeks to show that there is some good reason to believe Christianity. Whereas defensive apologetics seeks to present, <clears throat> seeks to nullify the objections to these truths. 
Or in other words, it seeks to show that there is no good reason not to believe Christianity. And this really ties in well with what we've been talking about all semester. Uh, Because as you're engaged with someone in a conversation about spiritual matters, you will very well, you may very well, and probably have already, found yourself doing both of these without even knowing it. And so with that as a definition and background, I must ask, did you guys know that we are all called to be apologists? We are all called to do apologetics. If you're a believer here tonight, you are mandated to do apologetics. And there's one verse in Scripture that really stands out as the apologetics verse, and this will be our verse of consideration. So turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, as we look at this more closely. And as you're turning to 1 Peter, (laughs) toward the end of your Bible, I want to state that the goal of apologetics is not to create mass confusion in order to show you to be profound, but it's to simplify the truth of the gospel to show it to be profound. Therefore, if this is the overall goal, goal, think with me, if this is the overall goal, then anyone can do this. You do not have to have a PhD in philosophy or science to do apologetics. And I think that's what we'll see as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter writing says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So, if we look at the first clause here, the first part of this, we see that the first step in apologetics is to be a Christian. You can't share what you don't have. Therefore, it says, sanctify Christ as Lord. And I want to ask, what's the context? Well, what's going on in 1 Peter? Well, the immediate context, if you look right before this in verse 14, uh, some of your Bibles will have it in all caps. It says, do not fear, in the second half of the verse, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Okay, well, don't fear their intimidation from what? Well, look at the beginning of 14. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. But do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord. What's the context? This is the context of suffering. This is the context of being persecuted for your faith. Don't fear their intimidation, but set apart Christ as Lord. Sanctify means to set apart. It means to make holy or to have a unique place for Christ in your heart. The ESV renders it, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Guys, this is true of a believer in a justification sense. You have been set apart and Christ is set apart. And it's never true for an unbeliever. And yet, even as believers, do we not need to be reminded constantly to be setting apart Christ as Lord? We need that reminder. And I want to focus in on that even for a moment. It says to set him apart as Lord, right? In order to do apologetics, you must set Christ apart within your heart as the Lord of your life, the King of kings of your heart, the King of kings of your mind, your will, your emotions, your passions, of your entire life. Jesus must be on the throne. And so before we do apologetics, before we evangelize, we must be a believer who is continually setting apart Christ as Lord. He must occupy the greatest depths of our person. And so with that as context, I want to launch into an exploration of what what does this mean when Peter says in verse 15, always be ready to make a defense. 
If we're called to do this, we have to understand what making a defense is and how we can do it in a way that's honoring to the Lord. And so we're called to make an apologia, okay, to everyone who asks us to give an account. Not an apology, like saying I'm sorry, but to give an apology, to give your defense, to give a reason to believe Christianity. The NASB I've been reading out of says, give an account for the hope that you possess. The ESV kind of helps us here, though. It says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter's commanding to always be ready to give the reason, the explanation for why you believe what you believe. So simply put, catch this, apologetics is giving the reason why you're a Christian. Have you thought much about that before? Why you're a Christian? So with the remainder of the time, guys, this is what I want to explore. I want to survey some principles and concepts of apologetics, and then I want to close by giving you a few tips on practical evangelism using apologetics. And to begin, I want to make one distinguish, a, a, a pretty big distinguishment. I want to draw the line between two views of apologetics that are going to be helpful for us to understand. And these two views are evidentialism and presuppositionalism. Okay, Two big words. Bear with me for a moment. Branching off these, we could go into several subcategories, but I just want to stay there for a moment. And my goal is to show you the benefits of both of these. So if I were to define these on, we'll just say, left-hand side, you've got evidentialism. And evidentialism is a theory in which the justification of a conclusion depends solely on the evidence for it. Okay? The justification of a conclusion depends solely on the evidence for it. On the other hand, presuppositionalism is a theory in which it's pre-assumed on the basis of Scripture that every individual is fallen in their natural state and therefore has no desire of the things of God. It presupposes that human nature knows about God, that He exists, but suppresses it, suppresses this truth in sin. You tracking with me so far? Okay, so therefore, evidentialists are seeking to provide external evidences to prove Christianity to be true, while presuppositionalists usually tend to stick to Scripture more uh, in, in conversations. So, apologetics, giving the reason for why we are a Christian. You guys well understand this. As you're in a conversation about the gospel, as you're doing evangelism or just things naturally develop, uh, conversations are going to go a, a plethora of directions. Sometimes you're going to have a lot of questions regarding why or why not of Christianity. Like, for example, well, I can't believe the Bible because it says Adam and Eve were created and that doesn't agree with evolution. Or, well, that's great if it's true to you, but that's not really true to me. A relativistic approach. Or, I just can't believe in God because of all the bad things that are happening in the world. This is just a sampling of the many forms of questions that you will undoubtedly encounter as you're sharing your faith. And we as Christians are called to always be ready to make a defense. And so I want you really to tune in tonight. I'm going to stretch your minds, hopefully, but I think it's going to be helpful. And so first, I want to consider this left-hand side. I want to consider evidentialism for a moment. And what we're going to find is that there are some really great arguments and proofs in this camp. Within evidentialism, we can think of external evidences. And first, to look at external evidences, there are several philosophical arguments that center on the existence of God. For example, there's the ontological argument. And like I said, this centers around God's being. There's the cosmological and teleological arguments. And these center around the main idea that creation appears to be designed. You can't escape that fact. 
It looks designed. Okay, it probably is designed. Uh, the third argument uh, on an external level is the argument of necessity. And this argument <laughs> argues that if everything made is contingent upon something else, then nothing would exist. If everything made is contingent on something else, then nothing would exist. Therefore, there must be at least one independent creator, eternal being. Okay, fair enough. There's the moral arguments. Uh, The well-known author C.S. Lewis was known for for presenting these. And uh, this argues that moral laws are transcendent of time and culture, therefore pointing to the fact that there's a moral lawgiver. Well, continuing at an external level, but less philosophical and more scientific, there's arguments based out of biology, arguments based out of geology, arguments based out of archaeology, arguments based out of cosmology. Uh, All through the field of sciences, there are Christians supporting strong arguments in defense of the Christian faith. Uh, A couple of verses that come to mind, Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen so that they are without excuse. Psalms 19, 1 and 2, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Clearly, these things testify of a Creator. Let this be a reminder for us that the God of the Bible wrote biology. He wrote the code on our DNA He invented the properties of physics that govern the the cosmos and the atom. So, of course, these are going to point to him eventually. Now, in all of these evidences, which, by the way, are really great arguments and proofs, um, I still have one difficult aspect. And here's my problem. Here's here's where I, I struggle. Is even if I win this argument, even if I go through any of these eight arguments I just listed, the person is still not a Christian. Even if they agree with me at the end, they are still not a Christian. I may have converted them from an atheist to a deist, but they're no closer to heaven than when we began. And so this in and of itself cannot be the end. This may be a starting point, but it cannot be the primary goal or the end. Well, we're not done with evidences just yet. I want to go a level deeper. I want to narrow the scope and look at internal evidences. Still within evidentialism, I want to look at some internal evidences. And what I mean is within Scripture itself. Here's a few arguments that could be made out of the internal evidences. Okay, Number one, biggest one, what comes to mind? Fulfilled prophecy. Okay, The Bible is the only book that has fulfilled prophecy and truckloads of it. Okay, Secondly, Synthesis, here's a huge one. Synthesis throughout the canon period. 1,500 years, 44 authors, and not one contradiction. Okay? Thirdly, historical reliability of the Gospels. They're historically accurate. Next, the changed lives of the apostles. 11 men, 10 of which die for their faith. Next, the historical life of Jesus the historical death of Jesus, and the historical resurrection of Jesus. And now I want to just give, I want to launch into a little example of what one of these arguments might look like. And what I think is probably the strongest one is the resurrection of Jesus. And so the way that an argument might begin is by first presenting any facts that deal with or pertain to the subject of debate. 
And so to consider just one fact, I want to consider the fact of Jesus' empty tomb. The empty tomb of Jesus is a historical fact. This is not even debated by seculars. It's not debated by non-Christians. The tomb was empty, period. That's the fact. That's the evidence, okay? If, if not, authorities could have just gone to the tomb, presented the body of Jesus, and the whole thing would have been over. Do you know how badly the Pharisees would have wanted this to happen? The Pharisees would have loved to just say, look at his dead body. There it is. But there's an empty tomb, okay? And so, within this argument, we would present a fact or an evidence. But following this, there has to be several possible explanations. I don't just want to assume resurrection. And believe me, unbelievers don't assume that. And so there are some possible explanations. And the first explanation that could be proposed uh, is called the conspiracy hypothesis, which says that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Well, modern scholarship has given up this theory for several reasons. For one, it doesn't address the fact that there was a Roman guard set outside of the tomb and that the tomb was sealed. Uh, Scripture tells us that a Roman centurion was placed around the tomb, which, by the way, would have been the equivalent to the Navy SEALs of our day. Uh, Further, on Sunday after the crucifixion, the guards were stunned. It says the guards were stunned by this angel and then were told to go make up a lie that the body was stolen. Secondly, this uh, conspiracy hypothesis doesn't adequately explain the disciples' sudden change of outlook. Okay, I want to focus particularly on Peter for a moment, who on the eve of the trial of Jesus' crucifixion denied the Lord three times. Following this, Jesus died, and Peter returned to his fishing. He returned to his old way of life. He returned to his old occupation. And yet, all of a sudden, in history, this man Peter is preaching at Pentecost. Thousands are being saved, and he becomes one of the first Christian martyrs. And history tells us that he didn't even want to be crucified right side up because he wasn't worthy to die as his Lord died, so he demanded that he be crucified upside down. Where did this boldness come from? The same guy that denied him on the night of his death? Well, and there's several other issues with the conspiracy uh, hypothesis, such as if they were making this up, if all the apostles were making this up, the simplicity of the Gospels, just the matter-of-fact nature of the Gospels, doesn't match what a historical account would be like. In fact, a historical account would be much more elaborate, fanciful, that Jesus burst through the tomb, gleaming, glowing like an angel. I mean, these kind of details are lacking. It's just facts in the Gospel. Uh, further, uh, the disciples would have been completely unfamiliar with the concept of resurrection. This was a com- totally foreign. They wouldn't have been able to dream this up if they were making it up. Uh, and beyond this, if they were making this up, they would not have had women be the first ones to be at the tomb. It would have been ludicrous. No offense, women. At the time, your testimony would not have been credible in the culture. So why, if you're making up this story... Would you have women be the first witnesses? All of these make it very difficult to believe this first hypothesis. Secondly, there's the apparent death hypothesis. And this states that Jesus somehow revived and escaped the tomb. Well, this is also given up even in secular circles today uh, for the following reasons. One, you still have the issue of the Roman guard in the sealed tomb. How did Jesus get past that? Two, we're dealing with Roman executors here which uh, were trained professionals at killing people and making them stay dead. This is what they did. Okay? Just saying. 
Scripture tells us, right, that they pierced the side of Jesus and water flowed out. Not just blood, but water. Confirmation that he was dead. Further, the disciples would have seen this half-dead, mangled man coming forward, not the risen Lord of glory. How would this have produced change? They wouldn't have been thinking, oh, great, you are the Messiah. They would have just been like, oh, how'd you survive that? Okay? Uh, And lastly, and this is a point that really, guys, we could use to counter any of these hypotheses, is the changed life of the brother of Jesus called James. And the reason this is significant is because in John 7, 5, it says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Not even Jesus' own brothers believed in him. And so let me ask you, what would it take to convince you that your own brother was God? Just saying. What would it take? James was not a believer during Jesus' life. And from what we know, he, he was well aware of the fact that Jesus did die. And yet, there's no evidence that he was a believer. However, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Paul records for us that Jesus appeared in the resurrected form to his brother James. James would soon after become the leader of the Jerusalem church and serve the Lord until death. Guys, a half-dead Jesus would not have produced this. Thirdly, there's the displaced body hypothesis. And this hypothesis just suggests that Jesus' body was planned for the tomb, but was buried in a nearby graveyard. Well, again, what of his appearance to the disciples? Okay, Eleven disciples claim to see the resurrected Lord. Uh, not to mention several other people, I think hundreds others, that he appeared to. Again, what of their changed lives? Well, what of the appearance of the angel to the Roman guard? What of the sealed, the sealed uh, tomb and the stone that was moved? Uh, again, why wasn't Christianity just silenced in these early days by going to the graveyard and saying, this is where Jesus is buried. He's not in the tomb. That's all it would have taken to discredit the whole thing. Well, it's worth noting not one scholar defends this today. And fourthly, and this is probably uh, one of the more popular hypotheses, or hypotheses, although it's ridiculous. Um, sorry, I'm biased. Uh, <clears throat> it's the hallucination hypothesis. And it states that all of the apostles had simultaneous hallucinations. Okay, well still, what was our primary evidence or our primary fact that we set forth at the beginning? Do you guys remember? The empty tomb. Okay, well this doesn't even deal with the empty tomb, so... Right there, we should just throw it out. But it says nothing of the empty tomb. Secondly, it says nothing of the origin of the disciples' beliefs. Again, this concept was, of resurrection was foreign to the Jewish thinker. If anything, they would have hallucinated that Jesus was in heaven with Abraham next to Moses. You remember Lazarus? Okay, He hallucinated, or didn't hallucinate, but he saw Abraham in heaven. This is what these guys would have hallucinated if they were going to hallucinate. Further, here's the more troubling part of this, is that it says Jesus appeared in many different places at many different times to many different people, both believers and unbelievers. This is psychologically impossible for all of these people to have the same hallucination. Do you guys get what I'm saying here? And fourthly, and this is a point under this, but it could be used for any, any of these points, is... The conversion of Paul. And I don't even really need to go into much description here, but Paul was a man who was Saul violently persecuting the church of God. 
He's on his way to Damascus, going to rip out more Christians and take them to jail. And the risen Lord appears to him and changes his life forever. And Paul would go on to be one of the greatest servants of the Lord this world has ever known. Well, lastly, guys, we're kind of running out of options. There's the resurrection hypothesis, which by its name indicates that indeed Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection hypothesis is the only one that can take all these pieces of evidence and the empty tomb and make sense of them. It's what Scripture itself claims, and this is the fundamental belief point that we stand on. You may recall from the Seder dinner last week, if you were here, that Tanner quoted Paul out of 1 Corinthians 15. And he said that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless that we are of all men most to be pitied. Well, the conclusion, guys, when we look at this, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. It is a a historical fact. There was an empty tomb, and all other hypotheses fail to adequately explain why. Jesus rose. Amen? Amen. Here's the thing to take away from this example. Don't ever fall for the lies of the enemy, okay? Uh, This is just one example of an evidential proof that can serve as an affirmation to your faith and perhaps be a tool in your tool bag when you're sharing your faith with others. Evidences or arguments like this might be helpful in ministering to a person while being an ambassador of Christ. Guys, take courage and have confidence. This Christian thing is the real deal. Christ is the real deal. Evidences, okay, presuppositionalism, okay? We looked at these external evidences for the existence of God. We looked at internal evidences within Scripture. We looked at the resurrection argument. But now I want to turn the tables a bit. I want to consider the question again, why are you a Christian? Simple question. Why are you a Christian? Or in other words, how do you know that Christianity is even true? If I were to ask you how you became a Christian, I highly doubt that any of you would say, well, someone walked me through the resurrection argument that you just walked me through. Because that's not the gospel. We need to understand that while these evidences and arguments may be helpful and they do serve a purpose, ultimately they will not convert anybody. No proofs for God, not even the resurrection argument will produce true conversion. And I mentioned this, but in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, recorded in Luke 16, the rich man died and went to hell, and the poor man, because of his faith, went to heaven. While in hell, Lazarus, who was in torment, asked that someone go to his friends and family and give them a sign. In fact, get this, he asked, send someone from the dead to them so that they will believe and not come to this place of torment. Well, what was the response? The response was no. We won't do that on the basis of Scripture. Abraham, who was in heaven, said, if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, then they will not even believe if someone goes to them from the dead. Guys, evidences will never be enough in and of themselves. Well, following this, I want to just give a few uh, views or examples from epistemology uh, in recent years. And we'll see that even our own ability to process evidence has been debated. For example, the view of the rationalists, okay? The rationalists believe that by reason, one can truly understand reality. 
Or along similar lines, modernists. You'll hear these names, these words thrown out. Who in an egalitarian manner believe that we can all equally arrive at the same objective truth. But the problem with both of these is that then reason becomes our chief source of authority. Reason becomes the power. Now I'm not saying Christianity is unreasonable because it's not. But do not many things of Scripture go beyond reason? Things like the Trinity, the hypostatic union of a, a fully God and fully man person in one person, Jesus? Beyond these, guys, is not our reason fallen and subject to the sin curse? Why should we trust it to accurately determine what is or isn't true? Again, Christianity is not unreasonable, but we as humans have a very limited and skewed view of reality. Well, following the modernists were the postmodernists, who, as we'll actually see, provided some helpful input into the discussion. See, modernism was the view of reality based on one perspective, and that perspective was that reason could lead mankind to the discovery of truth. This, in, well, the modernists opened the door to other perspectives. This in and of itself was a good observation. And now we know postmodernists will carry this thought on too far and they'll say, well, we can't trust uh, reason to come to an objective truth, so we're just going to say there is no objective truth. Truth is subjective. Josh can think what he wants. Nate can think what he wants. If it's true to you, great. Right? We saw in the video. If it's true to you, great, but it doesn't have to be true for everyone. There's no objective truth. Well, this doesn't quite fit either. Okay, we, we like that they opened up the perspective of different ways to obtain truth, but it can't be subjective because the Bible presents us with concrete, objective, singular truth. So what do we do with this? Where do we stand? Where should we stand in the sense of finding truth in reality? Well, I want to propose a very radical idea to you. How do we find out what truth is? We can't. It must be revealed. Okay? Revelation is the only avenue to make sense of what truth really is. And this is where our reliance on the Scriptures must enter into the discussion. The presuppositional side of things, if you will. The only way that man can arrive at the truth of creation, the reason for life, why we exist, our state before God, the person and work of Jesus Christ is by revelation. Deontay rightly taught that Nicodemus needed a complete transformation to occur in order to understand. And right after telling him to be born again in John 3, verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you did not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Only one who has the Spirit of God can understand the things of God. Therefore, God must regenerate the sinner's heart and open his eyes to be able to see and understand truth, and particularly the truth of God's Word. When regenerated, a recreation of the human heart and mind occurs, and the believer now understands truth and yearns for more of it. The result is that not only do we understand all these questions of the observed universe and creation, but we come to know and understand God himself. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12 says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit which is within him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And so we see that only those of God can know God, can know the things of God. Only they can truly know truth. Okay, well, what about the evidences? What should we do with them? Should we just forget about them and say science is wrong, philosophy is wrong, the moral arguments, they're all wrong, wrong, wrong? No. And this is where I think a helpful distinction can be introduced. The distinction that can be made is knowing versus showing. Well, what do I mean by this? In the context of a believer, to answer the question, how do you know that Christianity is true, perhaps we may give a simpler answer rather than one that's more complex. We know that we were blind and now we see, and we know that the fall of man had disastrous consequences uh, in our cognitive states, in our affective states. Our sense of, this, of divine has been damaged and, and deformed so that we don't understand God. We don't naturally seek God. Therefore, God must inform us with the Scriptures through the Holy Spirit. He must reveal Himself to us. We come to know the truths of the Gospels through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we need no evidence. The Holy Spirit is self-authenticating within us. And so to answer this question, okay, why are you a Christian? How do you know that, you're, that Christianity is true? <laughs> well, it's not because science led me there. It's not because philosophy uh, led me there or logic led me there. It's because God has opened my eyes to see. I was blind and now I see. He's revealed himself to us in the Scriptures through the Spirit. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, and the same thing in 4.13 says, For we know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And again in John 14, verse 16, Jesus saying, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Believers have the Holy Spirit of God within them. Therefore, how do I know that Christianity is true? How can you know that Christianity is true? Hmm, Because God told me so. Right? Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I'm not talking about some voice from heaven, but the internal evidence of the Holy Spirit. We know Christianity is true because of the self-authenticating witness of the Spirit. If you're a believer, guys, all you got to do is look back and see how the Lord has changed you. See how He's grown you. See how you love Jesus now, if indeed you do. See how you love his body, the church. See how you love his word, the word of God. Guys, these are not natural, okay? These are not natural things to love. But they're proofs that God is at work within. Therefore, we exalt the Lord. It's not because of us. It's not because of my reasoning that I'm a believer. But it's because of his working. The spirit regenerating. Then the spirit drawing and convicting and conforming to the image of Christ growing us in godliness and our love for the Lord. Well, still within knowing Christianity to be true, what about the unbeliever? What should our approach be to the unbeliever? How can they come to know the truth of the gospel? Well, the answer is the same. The unbeliever will come to know the truth of the gospel, know Jesus by the Holy Spirit. 
Think of it this way. If we try to convert them by philosophy, what will be the basis of their salvation? Will it not be their own reasoning capabilities? If we try to reason with them from a moral standpoint, will their confidence not be in their own morality or their own ability to discern and judge what is good and what is not? No, but for true conversion to occur, it must be a work of the Spirit. I want you to turn to John chapter 16. And I want to ask the question, if it is the work of the Spirit, well, how exactly does the Spirit work in conversion? How does the Spirit draw a sinner to repentance and faith? And we'll, we'll look at John 16, verse 7. Jesus speaking, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And so what we see here, guys, is that there are three ways in which the Spirit works in convicting the unbeliever. One, He convicts the unbeliever of their sin. Two, He convicts the unbeliever of God's righteousness. And three, He convicts the unbeliever of their condemnation before God. He paints this picture. God, man, condemned. And I want to say this. Catch this, guys. Catch this. This is how every post-Pentecost Christian that will be in heaven has ever or will ever come to realize their need for a Savior. No exceptions. This is the way the Spirit works. This is the way the Spirit convicts and draws men and women to repentance. The Spirit must be the one to do this because we know natural man cannot produce these results. Natural man cannot come up with this on his own. How do I know? 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The natural man cannot even understand the things of God. They're foolishness to him. No wonder Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So what's our response with unbelievers? Well, we faithfully share the gospel and then we pray. Lord, draw them. Lord, draw the students at MSU. Draw our unsaved friends and family. Draw them in Africa and in Asia and in Europe. Lord, do a work. Please draw them because I can't. They can't. You must do the work, Lord. Well, if that's the presuppositional side of things and that's the testimony of Scripture, how we can know What about the evidences? Well, whether philosophical or scientific, they're not a waste. And it it would seem as though they fit well in a category of showing Christianity to be true. And so we know that it's true by the work of the Spirit. But what of the Muslim who, quote, knows that his faith is true? How do we demonstrate that ours is true? They think they have the truth, but we know that we have the truth. So how can we show that ours is true? 
Christians sometimes want to just get into this presentation and they want to stay on track. They want to use this gospel track. And I'm not saying those are bad. They're great. They want to throw some Bible verses out there. And then they want to leave and say, well, I shared the gospel with them. And all the while, this person had some questions and he kept asking, but you just were stuck on on your presentation. And the way I know this is because I've done this. So don't feel bad if you've done this before. Shame on me. Here's an example, guys. You're talking with someone, and they say, well, I just can't believe in God because of the evil in the world. If you just continue on, no matter what you say, their problem is with evil in the world. That's where they're at in their mind right now, and they cannot get beyond that. To not answer this question either shows that you don't care or you don't know, and neither of those are a good thing to put off. If you don't know, it's okay to say, hey, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. But it's not good to just ignore their questions. In fact, in Acts 17, 2 and 3, it says, And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. We see that Paul reasoned for three weeks from the Scriptures the validity of the crucifixion and resurrection. So, in this example talk, perhaps you take a detour. You answer the question, and then you plead with them the validity of what you're discussing, and then return to the gospel. You take a detour for a moment. And it seems that there is at least a place for showing Christianity to be true, and I believe that this involves a lot of these arguments, these scientific proofs, and these internal evidences that I talked about earlier. So launching from this, I want to give us a helpful distinction. And first I want to look at how evidences can strengthen the believer. If you've got a note sheet, I think that's one of the points. Strengthening the believer. And the first point I'd make here is that showing Christianity to be true through evidences can give confidence to Christians to share their faith who would otherwise be scared of objections. Have you guys been there? You've been nervous to share your faith because you're scared of an objection? Well, these forms of evidences can give you confidence going into this. In any scenario, it would be easy for us to go the other way and to major on all this knowledge that we know. Let's say you know a lot about these evidences, and every talk you're looking for a chance to just get into it, and blah, here's what I know. That wouldn't be helpful. But what I am saying is that evidences can give you confidence and perhaps a tool to use to answer an objection, objection to your faith or to God or to the Bible, and then return to the gospel. Does that make sense? Secondly, under strengthening believers, evidence can give people confidence in the inerrancy of Scripture. And particularly, I'm thinking of the Genesis account. You may or may not be aware of this, but many Christians today do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They don't. They don't believe that every word of the Bible is inspired by God. And particularly in Genesis, they don't believe it contains real stories. They don't believe God literally created the universe in six days. Uh, and so I just want to ask this question. If we begin there, that God, it wasn't six literal days, well then was it a literal whale in Jonah that Jonah was swallowed by? Uh, was the Red Sea actually parted? Did the walls of Jericho actually fall down or did some, you know, the wind came and blew a few stones down? Did David, this little guy, really defeat this huge giant with just a rock? Did Jesus really walk on water? Maybe he had some water skis or something. Did Jesus really feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple fish? Did Jesus really raise a man from the dead? 
Did Jesus really himself raise from the dead? Do you see how this is a very slippery slope to go down? At what point do you stop? So then, here's my point. Evidences, both internal and external with regards to Genesis, may give believers confidence in the inerrancy of the Scriptures. For example, there's a man in this church who does research, along with many others, pertaining to the area of creation science. He looks at where the world's science and the Bible disagree, and he solves the problems. And most of the time, it's in the science. Guys like this do research that contribute, I believe, to a true repentance among believers when it comes to their view of the Scriptures. It gives them confidence. Okay, forgive me, Lord. I doubted your word. I can believe what you said is true. Thirdly, under strengthening believers, it provides believers with support during times of spiritual dryness and doubt. And guys, I'll be the first to admit, there will be flashes, times in my, in my mind, in my Christian walk, where I've got to counsel myself, where I'll start to wonder. I'm sitting in a class in engineering school thinking, man, this guy is really confident about what he's saying, and he's very atheistic. And I've got to counsel myself, wait a minute. I know Jesus rose from the dead. I know the apostles' lives were changed. I know my life has been changed. I couldn't have produced all this. And then I'm back, okay, yep, be quiet, Matt. You've got to counsel yourself sometimes. But I believe that it can be great support during times of doubt for you. Well, the second major aspect where evidences may, may be beneficial is in evangelizing unbelievers. And you're thinking, wait a minute, you're talking about both sides of your mouth. Well, just hold on a minute. I want to tread carefully. But I do believe that when used properly, evidences may open doors for unbelievers to hear out the gospel message. Yes, it's only the Spirit that can draw them, the gospel that can save them, but at times there are legitimate questions with regards to things like evolution, star dating, geology, legitimate questions about the morality of God, and sometimes it takes a person to present an alternative view in order for them to open their mind to another possibility. You may have heard, well, in fact, you have heard because we just watched the video on the Veritas Forum. This is exactly what this forum is dedicated to doing. In fact, I pulled part of their mission statement, and it says from the Veritas website, we host university events that engage students and faculty in discussions about life's hardest questions and the relevance of Jesus Christ to all of life. And so they're answering questions, and then they're inserting the significance and veracity of Jesus Christ. They're, they're submitting the hope of Christ. Well, this isn't a foreign account to Scripture either. Uh, we see the apostles doing this, appealing to evidence. In fact, to Jews, they appealed to fulfilled prophecy, one of the internal evidences. Uh, they appealed to Jesus' miracles. They appealed to Jesus' resurrection as evidence that He was the Messiah. To the Gentiles, they appealed to God's work in creation. I read this, but I'll read it again. Romans 1.18 For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And I found this verse. I'm, I'm pretty stoked about this one. Acts 14.17 And yet He, God, He did not leave Himself without witness in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What's the point there? God's common graces testify of His existence. Well, Jesus did a, a similar thing. He appealed to miracles. Uh, he appealed to miracles as evidence that He was the Messiah. Mark 2, uh, verse 8. 
He appeared in resurrected form to many different people in different places and different times. I listed this earlier, but 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. He appeared to Paul and James and the apostles and a whole bunch of other people in the resurrected form to validate that he was the Messiah. And so evidences can play a big role in our evangelism. And yet, I return to this point, they cannot be the end. They cannot be the end of the conversation. An appeal to evidence can be a tool, but it cannot be the end goal. And it may show believers that the Christian faith is true and that you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to become a Christian, but only the gospel can truly save that person. Only the work of the Spirit can truly cause them to know that it's true for it to be their own. In summary, here's a simple way to think of it. Evidence must minister to the gospel, not the other way around. The gospel does not minister to evidence, but the Word of God stands as judge and our foundation. And so as we close, I just want to give you a few practical tips. Okay, I've done a lot of talking. Hopefully this is real practical. We're going to go back to 1 Peter in a minute. I want to give you some practical tips and some helpful things to keep in mind during evangelism. And the first is I would just say this. This isn't really a tip. It's more of an exhortation. Commit to study now. Okay, commit to studying now. Make apologetics a lifelong pursuit. We're commanded in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be ready to give our defense. Therefore, we need to be prepared to give a defense. Prepare yourself. Guys, there are answers for people's questions. There's answers for your own questions. If you're a believer, then you know the Spirit testifies with yourself that you're a believer. But sometimes you're going to need to run through facts on your own. Other times you're going to need to minister to a friend. Commit to studying now and imagine where you'll be in 10 years. I'm not just talking about natural sciences and philosophy. Yes, those. But I'm talking about the Scriptures even. Be an apologist from the Word of God. Fall in love with the Bible more and more every day. Let it change you. Become part of your very fabric and being. Nothing's going to give you more assurance than that. Secondly, and this is a sweet point, so tune in if you're, if you're tuned out. Ask questions. And I'm talking about asking questions in evangelism. Guys, apologetics is not just giving a bunch of answers and talking, but apologetics is asking questions of people's answers and asking questions of people's questions, right? Jesus asked 150 questions in Scripture. Oftentimes, people's questions or their objections are not really what's at the heart of the issue. Have you experienced this before? It's a smokescreen. So we're called to be ready to make a defense, but a lot of times this looks like probing a little bit deeper don't just fall into the trap of, of uh, falling into the game of stump the Christian, okay? A lot of questions are not legitimate. Use discernment. It, a lot of times I'll ask this question. If I were to give you an adequate answer for that question, okay, I'm talking to an unbeliever. If I were to give you an adequate answer for that question, would you be ready to become a Christian? That's a very telling question because oftentimes the answer is no. They just want to stump you. And I would say this, unbelief is the root. It's not intellectual. It's not moral. It's unbelief. They don't want to submit to God. <laughs> Keep in mind this. Uh, the right answer to the wrong question is still wrong. I pulled this question from an apologist, but take this for example. Does your mother know that you're stupid? There's no right answer to that question. 
Okay, and that's a silly example, but you're going to find yourself in these scenarios. There are no right answers to some questions, so you've got to find out what's the heart of the matter. You've got to redirect the question, take charge of the conversation, and really get to the root of things. You came there to talk to them about the gospel, so don't leave without talking about the gospel. Thirdly, live with firm convictions. Please turn to 1 Peter again. Just two more points, and then we're done. 1 Peter 3.15 Peter says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. Wow, that's interesting. Well, earlier I said the first step in apologetics is you must be a believer. Well, the second step in apologetics is you must be living like a believer. What does this verse imply? What does this clause imply? Well, it implies that there's something to ask you about. It implies that there's something different about you from the rest of the world. Let me ask you, do you have people asking about the hope that's in you? Are you living differently from the world? In what ways? Compare someone who has Christ as Lord with someone who has school as Lord or relationships as Lord or popularity or comfort as Lord. Do you see how this is linked together? As Christ is Lord in your life, you're going to be different and people are going to see this person has a different hope. There's something different about this guy or gal. Fourthly, after living with firm convictions, keep the end goal in mind, okay? The next clause here, it says, uh, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. What is the hope that is in you? The hope is not logic. The hope is not reason or philosophy or science. The hope is Christ. We need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. These other things may be a useful tool to get into this dialogue, philosophy, science, reason, but the hope is Christ. And I'm thinking of Colossians 3-4 when Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Or Galatians 2-20, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Guys, Christ is our life. He's our hope. He's our reason for being a Christian. And under the same point of keeping the end goal in mind, the last part of this verse says, yet with gentleness and reverence. And if Christ is your life, then in a very real way, you represent Him. Right? What's the name of our series? Ambassadors. We are ambassadors, representatives of Christ. Therefore, when we engage in a conversation, you represent Him. It's not about winning the argument. It's not about being right. It's about winning the person to Christ. It's so easy to to be caught up in the argument and and whatever point you're making trying to win, and you forget about the person. The person, people, are who we're after. We're called to be fishers of men. Further, it says, with gentleness and reverence. And I just want to remind you, our ministry is unto the Lord. That's an interesting concept, but even evangelism is unto the Lord. So as I'm sharing with someone, yes, it's for their benefit, and yes, it's for my sanctification, and being faithful, but that ministry act is unto the Lord. Therefore, do it with reverence. Keep in mind, you represent Him, and there should be a healthy fear of God in that conversation. Lastly, number five, don't be discouraged at a lack of visible fruit. Many, if not most, will not respond well. Matthew seven fourteen, broad is the gate that leads to destruction. Uh, 
we are to communicate Christ and leave the results to God. And I'm always so encouraged by just rehearsing 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says, one guy planted the seed, another guy watered the seed, but who causes the growth? God. God causes the growth. And just one chapter later, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, therefore, it's required of, of stewards or of servants that one be found faithful. Guys, our objective is to be faithful. Okay, we've got to trust the Lord. We've got to do our best. We've got to exert ourselves, study, and be faithful. But ultimately, it's up to the Lord. And, and in my opinion, there's a lot of rest in that. Why don't we bow as we close in prayer? Father, thank you, Lord, for um, this verse. Lord, it is one verse. It is just one verse, and yet it is a powerful command and exhortation to us to, Lord, always be ready to make a defense. Lord, would you strengthen this body uh, to be bold evangelists, using apologetics, uh, Lord, representing your Son. Lord, these are serious, serious things, and we live in a difficult time. Would you encourage us, strengthen us, build us up? And Lord, if there's any here that don't know you, God, we ask that they would come to know you before it's too late. Lord, you are sovereign king, worthy of all of our worship and praise. Lord, would we all be continually sanctifying Christ in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.